0: Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic. And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We listened and did all that and more. It's why we're proud to be Just Capital's number one top company to work for. Bank of America, what would you like the power to do? Just Capital used annual rankings to track performance across the five worker-related issues evaluated. Bank of America and a member FDIC equal credit opportunity lender.
1: With your choice of select sandwich, nugs, fries, and a drink, Wendy's $5 Biggie Bag is your go-to. Your nugget wingman. Your hot and crispy fry co-pilot. Just like us. We're like the bag boys. What? Bag boys, bag boys. What you gonna do?
0: What you gonna do when we bring your food? (sighs) For a deal you can count on, bet on Biggie and choose wisely. Choose Wendy's. Bag boys, bag boys. U.S. price of participation may vary, includes choice of T.V.C. or crispy chicken sandwich with four piece nugs, junior fry, and small soft drink. Third party delivery pricing may be higher. It's 2 p.m. in Memphis, Giannato and Jeffrey time. Get off the fence. Live on Memphis's sports station, 92.9 FM, ESPN. Jet mother jet.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome <laughs> to the Gene Ottawa Jeffrey Show. We're coming to you live from Memphis, Tennessee. My name is Jeffrey Wright. You can follow me on Twitter at jwright929ESPN. Mark's getting ready for the Tigers' season opener. He had a few other things to do, so he will not be with us. But fear not, we will, of course. Speak with Commercial Appeals' Jason Munns during the next segment. We'll get his thoughts on the Tigers' season opener tonight as they take on Jackson State. More importantly, it felt like moments after the show ended on Friday, we did get clarification on the status of DeAndre Williams. He will not be eligible for the Tigers. So we'll get all of Munns' thoughts on Tiger basketball when he joins us here in about 35 minutes or so. It's Monday, so that means it's overreaction Monday. Let's overreact to what we all basically watched this weekend. We'll start with the Grizzlies. Of course, we'll get into Tiger football. A couple of notes on a few other football topics. We'll also discuss a little bit of Tiger basketball before we get into, or should say before we take a break and welcome Munns to the program. 3.05, it's Monday, so we will recap the recap of NFL football week nine. And I will let you know, folks, our guy, Boom, did not disappoint when he started the weekend off. He started the weekend off of NFL football just like we all did, waking up yesterday and watching the Kansas City Chiefs and the Miami Dolphins. So we'll get into the week that was in the NFL. We'll also get into the list, a few other college football notes. We've had a few other managerial position changes in Major League Baseball. We'll get into that and then we will tell your story and get out of here. But it's overreaction Monday, and we had two Grizzlies games over the weekend. I figured, let's start there. So, let's start with Friday night. Because Friday night, the very first ever NBA Cup game, NBA in-season tournament, and truthfully, it was one of those games where you didn't really know how you were supposed to feel because particularly early, you felt like you were watching the same game that you've largely been watching for much of the season in which the Grizzlies fall behind. And particularly, I think it was most disheartening because the Grizzlies fell behind and they fell behind early. What we typically have been seeing with the Grizzlies is the starters play decently well. Then the second unit comes in, the Grizzlies struggle, and then it feels like you spend the rest of the game trying to fight your way back into position to see how the game will go. But it was a little bit different on Friday night because the starters largely fell behind early. And there were a couple of there were definitely a couple of changes that we saw. First and foremost, the main change we saw was something that Mark had mentioned on the program. It was the Grizzlies had been really getting beat on lineups that did not include two players of either Jaron, Dez, Marcus Smart. But if you had two of the three on the floor, the Grizzlies seemed to have a little bit of success. But they're at their best when all three are on the floor. But when you would only have one on the floor, the Grizzlies would really start to struggle. Well, we did see the changes from the coaching staff on Friday night, in particular, because we started to see fewer, if any. I'm trying to. I, I don't have it off the top of my head. I was trying to think if we had any minutes, but it felt like at some point, almost all, almost all the minutes included either Des Jaron or Marcus Smart to a certain degree. We also saw on Friday night the amount of minutes that Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. were playing went up significantly. They both got into the 40-minute mark, and obviously with it being an overtime game, that was skewed a little bit, but it was very obvious that there was an increase in minutes and there was definitely an emphasis of and an acknowledgement of the reality of the situation. The Grizzlies are just not a very good basketball team without at least two of those guys on the floor. And I think it's also very obvious at this point, when the Grizzlies don't have Dez and Jaron on the floor, it becomes quite difficult. I think the other overreaction that I would start with, at least in a positive, is, yes, it has not been a perfect start to the season for Jaron and Dez, but those two guys, in particular with the absence of John Morant, they're giving you what you're asking for them, or asking of them because so far, Dez is now ninth in the league in scoring, including 18th in efficiency. He also ties Sharif Abdul Rahim as the only player to have a 34 and 4 game. He did so on Friday. He adds another 30 point game last night. But I think the thing that was most disheartening about Friday night was the way it unfolded, particularly in the second half. And I think there were a couple of things that played into it. Number one, when you watch a team collapse late game, like the Grizzlies did, it's tough to take a ton of optimism. The Grizzlies build a 10-point lead with 3.5 minutes to play, maybe 3.15 to play, and they squander the lead. Luke Kennard gets his three-pointer blocked at the end. It goes to overtime, and it felt like, at least from everyone that I was watching, it seemed like on on social media everyone kind of had the same opinion, which is this game going to overtime felt very deflating for the Grizzlies, and I didn't sense a great deal of optimism. It turned out that that is the way that it played. The final score made it look like it was a one possession game, but in in reality, the Grizzlies got a three, I think, from Jaron at the end of the you know with five tenths of a second later and they lose by two. But I think the other thing that made Friday night particularly disheartening was the manner in which the Grizzlies played the game. The Grizzlies essentially played that game like it was a Game 7 of a playoff series, like it was a do-or-die game. And they come up empty-handed. So there's a couple ways that you can look at it. Number one... I suppose you can view the in-season tournament as a positive. I don't necessarily think the in-season tournament was the reason that we saw the Grizzlies treating the game the way that they did. I think it was the reality of the situation. The Grizzlies are coming in at that point. They're 0-5. You can feel the gravity of the situation taking hold, and it felt like They just knew, whether it was the coaching staff, players, whatnot, everyone knew, you gotta get a win here. And I think the disheartening aspect of it was the fact that they exerted that much effort and they still come up empty-handed. Now, the one good thing about the two-game series, if you will, the two-game road trip, was you got to get back right into the thick of competition last night and... I thought the thing that was interesting about last night was it felt similarly that the Friday night game and the Sunday game were similar in how they similar in terms of the game flow, maybe that's the appropriate way to phrase it, but the results were different in which game one the grizzlies try to pull away, they can't do so and they come up into hand in overtime. Last night kind of felt like a flipping of the script where it felt like you're watching the game and you think Portland's going to pull away, and yet here the Grizzlies mount this furious comeback and they get off the schneid. And really they put the Trailblazers away pretty handedly at the end for a comfortable 12-point win. In terms of trying to use the the games themselves as microcosms for the season, I don't necessarily think that's, I don't think that's in everyone's best interest for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think the Trailblazers are a very good basketball team. And when you start to look at the remaining 18 games for the Grizzlies that they'll have without John Morant, it's likely that those are going to be the two of the most winnable games that you're going to have the rest of the way. Particularly when you consider, I still think probably the Rockets are slightly better. Two of the three Rockets games and the remaining 18 are on the road. I think the Thunder are clearly better than the Blazers. I think you can even say at this point, the Spurs are better than the Blazers. The issue with trying to use football brain and looking at the schedule and seeing what is the path for the Grizzlies the remaining 18 is, we simply just have no idea who's going to show up at play. We're already starting to see injuries take their tolls. For God's sakes, what a what a note to see on the bottom line last night if you're watching sports. C.J. McCollum has a collapsed lung, and it's the second time he's had a collapsed lung. So the wear and tear of an 82-game season will still take its toll, and we don't know. There's plenty of games that you could look, if you're just looking at it in terms of what do I think about this team versus what I think about that team, and the game ends up being nothing what you would think, because that's just the nature of the NBA. But I think the single biggest overreaction that I can have from the weekend, and it's definitely in the no-duh category, the single biggest overreaction is, good God, does this team need John Morant? And I don't want this to be misinterpreted as pointing the finger at John Morant. The biggest reason that I think that you can see why this team needs John Morant is simply this team really needs a point guard. I am not putting this on Marcus Smart. He's doing... A job that he's being asked to do, but not the job that he was brought in to do. In the end, the Grizzlies brought in Marcus Smart to play alongside John Morant, to be the Dylan Brooks replacement. Instead, he's being asked to largely run the offense and hold steady until John Morant comes back. But you could see on Friday night when they had an opportunity to put the game away. Crucial turnover, the offense looked very disjointed, and there was not the the stabilizing force of a pure point guard that John Morant brings. I think another big reason that you can really see how desperately the Grizzlies need John Morant is look at how well Desmond Baines playing and look at the amount of attention that he is garnering when Dez is on the floor it feels like he's getting double teamed all the time which makes it even more impressive that he is playing at the level that he has through six games four of which he scored 30 points or more secondly I've got I've got no no nitpicking with Jaron Jackson jr. But imagine how much easier the game would be for both Jaron and Dez if Ja were on the floor. I think also the other thing that you could realize on Friday night is with Zaire Williams, if you're going to unlock what he provides, you need someone like Ja that can really help him get up and down, make the high-flying plays, and that's what he provides. Marcus hasn't played with, with, with Zaire to the level that Jaw has. That's also not really Marcus's game. I think the other overreaction, and this is definitely an overreaction, but I'll I'll explain why. Maybe it's something to monitor. I think the Bismack Biombo edition is going to be pretty solid. Do I think that? he's going to replace the production of Steven Adams? No, well, we, we do need to remember there's a reason why he was available. He wasn't signed to a team. But just think about what the Grizzlies have needed, particularly in the first six games in which they were, they were losing. The Grizzlies have just needed someone inside that can control the glass. They need someone with a big body that's going to help guys get downhill allow the Grizzlies to get into the paint and score more easily. And I think it's entirely, uh, with the sample size being admittedly small, I think it's entirely realistic to think that Bismack Biombo can provide that. Is he going to be your starting center for 70 games? I do not know the answer to that. But it did seem like last night when you're watching the game, It allowed the Grizzlies to play more comfortably because with the addition of Biombo, it played a game that was more familiar. It wasn't just like having Steven Adams in there, but you could squint your eyes and you could see it. And that was, I felt like what helped the Grizzlies offensively. The other Grizzlies overreaction is the defense is still a problem. The problem with Criticizing the defense is determining where the blame's to go. I think oftentimes we would like for it to be simple, point the finger. It's the scheme, it's coaching, whatever that. However, if you want, however you want to phrase it, if you want to say it's over rotating, if you want to say it's it's a bad scheme. But I think essentially the 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 crux of the argument would be it's coaching. I like think at times you've definitely seen this year where it feels like the Grizzlies just get themselves entirely out of position from over-rotating, whether it's because guys are inexperienced whatnot. In the end, whether or not it's players making mistakes, it's the scheme is poor, the reality is it was asking guys to do things that they had not been able to execute. So in the end, the defense is still a problem. I still think the bigger issue right now is I'm not sure how much of that is solvable. I think it's largely I think it's largely difficult to determine how much of it is solvable because well, it feels like the Grizzlies don't know night to night who's going to be on the floor. I don't want to say after watching last night you can say your overreaction is problem solved. The Grizzlies will be fine. Like they'll they'll muddle through these next, you know, eighteen games, somewhere around five hundred. They'll they'll return with Jaw. The the Jaw return will be somewhere around nine or ten wins. If you look at the standings right now, the gap between you and fifth place is two and a half games. I will say you did recognize last night, in addition to making rotational decisions that I think were for the best, getting guys off the floor that really had no, real really had no business being out there. You started to see guys that were falling into roles that are more comfortable. Santi, in limited minutes, provides something for you that you've not had in the second unit. And obviously another huge aspect of last night is Luke Kennard shot the ball incredibly well. I don't think it's I don't think it's insane to think that you can get that kind of production out of Luke Kennard most nights. It wasn't as if this was a night where he went off, you know, made 10 threes, 11 threes. He gave you 15 points on 4 6 4 of 6 shooting from deep, but most importantly it was somebody that you had to focus on. And it allowed more space and more freedom for the Grizzlies to play. And I do think, offensively, the last two nights, that looked more like what we expected from the Grizzlies. Again, I'm not going to sit here and say the overreaction is the Grizzlies are now fine. But I think the biggest overreaction that you can have, one that I think is somewhat reasonable and defensible, The biggest overreaction is the Grizzlies are getting more comfortable. And they're getting more comfortable primarily because you're not asking David Roddy to play the four for extended minutes. You're not asking Marcus Smart to go and win a basketball game with the ball in his hands starting the offense more so than not. When you have multiple guys on the floor... The spacing is there. It allows for the freedom. And I think the final biggest overreaction that I have from the weekend is if the Grizzlies indeed are going to tread water, however you define that, if you define that as they've got to get to double-digit wins before John Morant comes back, if you say in their next 18, they've got to go 9-9, and I think the thing that is incredibly obvious is If the Grizzlies are going to meet that standard, however you want to define it, Jaron and Dez Dez have to continue their form. Because when you start to look at it, and again, sample size is very small, both have been playing pretty damn well. You can make cases that they've been top 25 players so far. But, and a key but, they've played at a pretty high level for much of the season so far. And the Grizzlies are 1-6. and six. I think the biggest aspect that you could sense last night watching the game, when Luke finally hit that three, and you saw the TV cameras cut to the bench, you could almost, A, you could feel the excitement and the enthusiasm, which is good to see. I'm, I'm not sitting here saying, like, I want these guys to feel as crappy as they have. But you could also feel the exhaling. It was almost a sense of relief. And it does make you wonder how much of the winless start was weighing on them. Because part of the issue with the winless start is a lot of the games weren't super competitive late. Nuggets game was competitive late. I'd say the Wizards game was quasi-competitive late, but it still felt like for much of the game they were... They were trying to fight their way back, which was understandable it was the second night of a back-to-back. The Utah game was not competitive. Friday night, they found themselves in an unfamiliar spot, which was trying to put a game away. They weren't able to do so. I think the thing that'll be interesting is now finally getting the win and not having to think about every single night of when are we going to get a win, when are we going to get a win. I'm curious to know if that frees up the Grizzlies. Are they going to start to play better? Miami's not gotten off to a good start. They come in Wednesday night. How are the Grizzlies going to be back at home? Now that they're starting to now that they're starting to have the pieces that they were expecting, there's still no Steven. There's still no Ja. The status of Tillman seems to be day-to-day. The status of Conchar seems to be day-to-day. You would expect you're probably going to get Derek Rose back at a certain point this weekend. I know Derek has not been awesome by any stretch of the imagination. I did find myself wondering, though, on Friday night, would maybe they have turned to him on Friday night to just kind of st- stabilize things offensively? No one on the floor was really playing particularly great defense on the perimeter. Maybe you weren't gonna. You know, maybe you weren't giving up as much as you would have thought. Uh, again, it, it's part of the reality of the eighty-two game season. Like the Grizzlies, despite not having Ja and Steven, they're still going to deal with other injuries. They're going to. That's just the nature of of the league and the way that the season plays out. But overall. I don't think you can say it was a successful trip. I thought they'd get two of the three. They only wind up getting one of the three. I do think, though, it was somewhat calming, and not just calming because now the Grizzlies don't have to worry about being winless and worrying about when the win was going to come. I think it was calming because you started to see guys being back in more normal roles. Overall, those are the overreactions. We still have plenty of more games to overreact to. I want to see what they look like when the Grizzlies return home. But overall, I'm not going to call it a success, but I am happy for the guys and that they finally could exhale and they don't have to worry about those questions. And let's see if maybe they can turn a small positive and they can start to build on it. Because I do think another problem that the Grizzlies had during the winless streak was you could almost sense a question of what's going to happen next. You could almost feel the dread. We're going to talk more about it with Munns, but another thought that I had, Tiger basketball related, and I don't want to put too much pressure on them because it's not really the role that they've asked for, but one of the overreactions I had this weekend, particularly when I watched... Tiger football get the punt blocked and all of a sudden they're down to USF and you have your your fears of, oh my God, is is this going to be a close game in which the Tigers don't come out on top? They didn't. We'll discuss that a little bit too. But as I'm watching that game and I'm thinking about the disappointment of Friday night in which the Grizzlies blow a 10-point lead, I found myself thinking about, Kind of the nature of the sports scene right now. To act as if it's at an all time low or anywhere remotely close would be wildly disingenuous. But there's unease. Even with Tiger Football, when they're seven and two, I think most fans kind of all are in the same spot in which you never apologize for being seven and two. You could easily be 5-4, and 4-5. Four, four and five. I mean, there's a universe where the Navy game goes against you. There's a universe where the Boise State go, game goes against you. There's a universe where the North Texas game goes against you. There's a universe on Saturday where you, you don't get it back. So you don't apologize for being seven and two. I think the problem that everyone has, and this was my Tiger football overreaction, was the Tigers are, it feels like we're getting everything that we want out of a Tiger football season except for answers. And now we can't just, it's not like a book where we can just turn and see how it ends, or it's not like a movie where we can fast forward and see how it ends. I still think the biggest problem is you're trying to process what all this means. Because I think there's smart Tiger football fans out there that understand, yeah, we're 7-2, and two, but largely the 7-2 is the result of the schedule. The two games where we weren't expected to win, we haven't won. The rest of the games we've been expected to win and win by pretty big margins. And here we are at 7-2. and two. And the problem is, yet again, you got another game with Charlotte this weekend where you're not going to have that answer. The answer, though, could come a week from Saturday at 11 a.m. when the Tigers play SMU. SMU had been rolling and demolishing opponents. They went on the road to Rice and they struggled. Came down to the last possession and they had to get a stop. Rice is rotating quarterbacks. You got JT Daniels on the sideline in a baseball hat. Like, it was just uh, something to behold. But you still don't have the answers of, is this something I can put my faith in? We won't have that. But the biggest overreaction that I have in terms of the sports scene right now is we really need Tiger basketball to be good. And it's not as if I'm giving up on the Grizzlies season, and it's not as if I'm giving up on the Tiger football season. The problem is there's still a wait and see with both teams. With the Grizzlies, it's obviously gonna be you're waiting until John Morant comes back. Where are they gonna be? Are they still gonna be in it? Have they gonna play their way out are they are they gonna play their way out of it? With Tiger football. Still comes down to if you win out, yes, you don't control your own destiny, but I suspect you're gonna be playing for a conference title. And after Air Force's loss this weekend, which I don't suspect that's gonna be their last loss, I think it's entirely realistic a ten and or eleven and two AAC champion Memphis Tigers is in the new year six. So everything's still there but I don't sense that everybody believes that come next Saturday, if Memphis gets that game at 8-2, SMU's at 8-2, I don't get the sense that everyone is just 100% Memphis is winning that game, despite the fact that Memphis and even Ryan Silver, they've had success against SMU. But it does feel like we need something we can really put our faith in. A team that, Every time they line up to play, you feel pretty good. I think right now, that team is Tiger basketball. Yet here we are. We still don't know. Looked good in one exhibition. Dominated another exhibition, despite it being a little clunky. Are we going to learn anything really tonight? Probably not. But they got a good test against Missouri coming up this week. What kind of start are they going to get off to? And if they get off to a good start, yeah, you're not in the polls right now. But Tiger basketball is really a, a couple of good weeks from being very much a part of the college basketball story. Let's talk more about that with Munns. We'll do that next right here on Giannotto and Jeffrey,
0: 92.9 FM. Yeah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. Giannato and Jeffrey, broadcast live from the Red River Toyota studios. Check out Red River Toyota in Wynn, Arkansas. This hour of G&J is brought to you by the Next Generation 10G Network, only from Xfinity. The Giannato and Jeffrey Show on 929 FM, ESPN. Each and every Monday here on the
1: program, we're joined by Jason Munns. He, of course, the Tiger basketball beat writer for the Commercial Appeal. You can follow him on Twitter on X at Munsley. Also, make sure you subscribe to the Tiger basketball newsletter. Are you going to be sending the group chat out this year, too? Oh, yeah. What are we listening to, by the way?
2: Oh, Spear in the Sky, Norman Greenbaum. Classic. I don't think I can hear this
1: song without thinking. Remember the Titans. Now, right?
2: Yeah, I know. I know what's a football. I know. What, I know. No, what but I, I'm
1: not. I'm not criticized. I just think like whenever I hear this, I just think of the scene from Remember the Titans.
2: Yes, same here. hundred uh, percent. But uh, but it, for me, it like sort of. I don't know. It signifies a a uh, the, the, the like a like a new dawn sure. sort of thing, and uh, and that's that's. Why I chose it? We've got some Tiger basketball to play tonight.
1: All right, we'll get to the the new dawn in just a moment. But I'm not kidding you. I think your story on Friday, I, I we got off the air at whatever 3:57. I feel mm-hmm. like the retweet started at 4:02. The news that DeAndre Williams did not win his appeals process. Yeah. I guess take us back, like now with the gift of hindsight, now knowing the end. When you think about the situation, it's entirely how do you define it?
2: Um I mean, I think I think that DeAndre um did probably what a lot of people would have done um in his shoes. Um I don't I don't you know, I don't get the sense that he was necessarily getting the most attractive um, you know I, I don't think his options were necessarily more attractive than another season at Memphis and so you know like some people started kicking that around and you realize oh he's not out of eligibility and and I, th- I thought Memphis uh, you know why wouldn't you sure. uh, especially I mean the other thing is all that started all that DeAndre Williams um, stuff started when they didn't have Javon Quinterly, and they didn't have David Jones, and they didn't have Jaquan Walton, and they didn't necessarily yet have Jordan Brown on campus. Like there was still a lot of up, stuff up in the air, and um, and so for that reason, I, I feel like you know there was a no-brainer on Memphis's side. So, I mean, you get to this point and. The team looks really good. Uh like it didn't I don't think it held them back from putting together a really, really nice roster. So I mean honestly, it's almost you know, they gave it their best shot and uh it came up short. And so but but I don't I don't think it like you know, I, I don't think we can sit here and say that they shouldn't have done it or that it cost them anything. Like I, I feel like it was it was uh the smart thing to do and um, cause cause if it works, I mean, look out, you know what I mean? Like, no, you, you can't dream big enough if you get him back with the rest of this roster. But, uh, if you don't, you move on. Yeah. I, I, I think I'm with you.
1: Like it, it felt like a free swing and you're right. When it first started happening, you're, you're thinking, okay, this is a little bit more of a, a need the way mm-hmm. that the rest of the recruiting class panned out. No, it would have been a, a cherry on top. I guess yep. the thing that I always struggled with was, do you sense that the decision had the swings of emotion that we sensed locally? Because, I don't know, like, I I felt like when, it, when I first heard the news, I was like, hmm, seems like a long shot, but I totally get it. If you're Memphis, I totally get it. If you're DeAndre, I totally get it but it felt like a long shot and then you started getting these like roller coaster of emotions where like oh it's going to happen and then you started thinking like well some of these other other guys are getting their waivers like they're getting their waivers it took longer but they're they're getting them and you could start to say well why would DeAndre be no different i just wonder like do you ever get the sense that it kind of rode the roller coaster like we felt it locally, or do you think that that was maybe the? It feels like there were so few people that actually knew what was happening that you know any limited information that would kind of swing opinion.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's be clear here. Um, first of all, nobody anywhere outside of the NCAA office knew, you know, like really anything, um, yeah. outside of, outside of, you know, like what Memphis was doing, you know, we knew, we knew that they had submitted, you know, a request and then we knew that got denied. And then we knew they submitted a P or a, a, a waiver request and we knew that got denied. And so like, we were, we knew some stuff like that, but as far as like, which way this was ultimately going to go, um, nobody knew and nobody, nobody knew like at any point, um, what was ultimately going to end up happening, and so I think that there was a a, a a roller coaster. As you said, there was a roller coaster locally because you know you had people who you know were telling other people that they felt really good about things, and here's why they felt really good about things, and then the denial comes, and it's like, oh, okay, maybe maybe not, and then and so I, but but I. To answer your question, I think that out, you know, like outside of the, uh, of of this atmosphere, the, the Memphis basketball atmosphere, um, I, I don't think there was a great, like some sort of great ebb and flow. Um, I, I think that it was a long shot from the beginning, and at least that's that. At least that those were the indications that I was getting back in May in early June when this process began, when DeAndre came out and said, Hey, this is what I want to do. Like it was, it was indicated to me very early on that, uh, you know, from, from people who have, who like know about this sort of stuff, sure. like they, 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 you know, are very well versed in these realms um, and and not just one or two people. I, I mean, I was talking to people who, who, who work in this arena, Across the country, who were who were, who were telling me um, that this was highly unlikely to to work. Um, now, then I go and I talk to Don Jackson and 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 the, the attorney uh, who helped DeAndre with this, and you kind of start to you kind of start to feel it's hard not to feel like sure. Oh man, like uh, that sounds really really good, and and it does. And it's I'm not saying that like there wasn't merit to what Don Jackson and, and Memphis was and DeAndre Williams were arguing. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I do not think that it was a, it was an up and down thing outside of here. Uh, it was always, it was always a long shot.
1: No, cause I, I'm with you. Like I always think back anytime you have anything that deals with the NCAA, it always becomes emotional because if you just say NCAA, that, that term right there elicits an emotional response.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think back definitely. to.
1: You know, when I covered Ole Miss's NCA investigation, and I think about you know the IRP case and whatnot. And you know, oftentimes when you would talk with you know legal representation, they would always leave you feeling like, "Damn, I th- this this got a real shot." But I always think back to like when, you, with the exception, honestly, of Memphis's IRP case, where which I think they they came out about as good as you could have. Yep. For the most part, it's kind of like, what was your initial instinct that's typically how it goes yeah and and I ask all that with DeAndre's because like I don't I don't think that it was dumb of him to try this but at the same time like I don't also feel that there was some miscarriage of justice am I misguided in that
2: no and and that's exactly what I was getting ready to say is I I don't I think I think you can have two things uh be true here um that Ultimately, what the NCAA has done here is not uh, some outrageous, uh, egregious uh, thing that that that's that's um, unjust toward anybody, whether it's DeAndre or the University of Memphis. I don't I don't think, you know. I mean, I think I think the way they ruled, um, you know, it's like, oh, okay, you know, that makes sense. Uh, but at the same time, I also don't think that. What they were, what Memphis and what Memphis slash Don Jackson slash DeAndre are, are arguing here. I don't think that there's uh, not some stuff in there that is valid. I, I, I think that there are some valid arguments in in what in the arguments that they presented in the case that they put together. Um, so yeah, I, I think both can be true. I think you can have uh, you know DeAndre and, and Don Jackson and the University of Memphis were were right and they made valid points, valid arguments. But at the same time, uh, this is not a situation. You know, at least knowing what we know, which, granted, isn't isn't everything. Um, far not, far from complete. Sort of, yeah, right. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, like I said, knowing what we know, I don't think it's some some uh, you know like messed up situation on the NCAA's part. And then to close the book on this, you know,
1: in your mind, how will you remember DeAndre Williams?
2: Oh man, like he he I mean I, I wrote a story back in February um like a like a sort of big feature anticipating the end of his Memphis basketball career uh and the headline was something about uh, said something like um, you know uh, uh, deAndre williams has how, how DeAndre Williams has become the face of the Memphis basketball program and honestly like the more I thought about it over the weekend, I think i'll remember him two two ways in in the in the silo of you know our realm here as honestly one of the most impactful players, maybe of the last, certainly the last decade, maybe of the last decade and a half, maybe even two decades. Um, probably not two decades. That's, that's probably.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always like, you know, the, the Joe Jackson, Four Kings. Right. But, like, I, I think the difference, though, is with those teams, it felt like they didn't reach their potential. And while you can nitpick, you know, if if the Tigers beat FAU and and whatnot, like did they reach the absolute complete ceiling? Like, I've just always felt like you got a ton out of DeAndre Williams' scholarship. Like, I think that's just how I remember him. Like, and I just I enjoyed watching him play. Like, I he's one of those guys that when you're watching him play, you're like, I know this guy's probably didn't have an NBA future, but this is just a damn good college basketball player.
2: Yeah, and in the broader spectrum is what what he sort of signifies in this day and age, the fact that he was here for three seasons, uh, you know, that you had a guy, yes, he transferred, but when is the next time do you think we're going to see a guy who's that talented, who's as talented as he was, spend three seasons anywhere? Um, You know, especially, I I don't know, I I just feel like that's going to be – He's such
1: That's, a, I agree, because he's such a unique case. Because obviously, he originally arrives kind of before COVID transfer portal, like before all the just the massive like chaos that came with it. Mm-hmm. But furthermore, it's like, I don't know, like how many guys are there in college basketball that impact a game like he did, which I think also leads to him playing for as long as he did. But like, I, I agree. I think he's just, like, he's such a unique, case study that I I don't know how often you're going to see that in college basketball.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So he, 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 uh, just a very, uh, impactful, impactful guy. He meant a lot to a lot of people around here. And, uh, and that was part of that feature story back in February. I talked to a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of people that I talked to that didn't make it into the story, but, um, just, yeah, just, he, he, you know, he meant a lot to a lot of people. So, uh, and still does. And so, uh, It's a shame. It sucks. Uh, But, you know, uh, we move forward.
1: Tigers taking on Jackson State tonight. It is an ESPN Plus game, 7 p.m. Last I saw, the Tigers are, I think, 21, 21 and a half point favorites. Obviously, if we're talking about a loss tomorrow, it's like I think something went, like, horrifically wrong. So I'm not necessarily all that concerned with, you know, how does the game play out. But I think what's – I think let's start with this first question. What's for you? What's the first thing you're looking for tonight?
2: Mm, I w- I'm looking, okay. So I guess we'll say chronologically, I'm looking at what the starting lineup's going to be. Penny said yeah. after uh, last, after the LeMoyne Owen exhibition, he said he's looking to inject more energy into the starting lineup um, and, and didn't really mince words. I mean, he kind of said, I'm going to make some sort of change to the starting lineup. Um, So I'm very curious to see what that means. Uh, I know, I know, uh, and even Jaquan Walton said it in the post game uh, after the LeMoyne Owen game that he made a concerted effort to play with more energy. Um, So I don't know if, you know, that was his response. Maybe, maybe Penny sort of challenged him. Um, You know, we'll see. We'll see tonight. Uh, what that what that looks like as far as the starting lineup. But the other thing I would say one of the other things is I'd like to see um Javon Quinterly get through the game healthy. Yeah. And then and then also, you know, what he does is is it it just felt like and Penny said it after the game that he had missed about a month of practice time before getting on the floor uh against Lemoyne Owens. So you know, has he shaken the rust off? I, he looked a little rusty um, against LeMoyne Owen, and he committed four turnovers, I think. He had a couple of uh, three-pointers he made and, you know, passed out some assists and everything. So I, I'd like to see if, you know, what he looks like um, his second time out. Um, uh, you know, uh, can David John, uh, can David Jones uh, string together three Really, really strong performances. Um, you had, in the exhibitions, he had back-to-back games of 17, 8, and five. Uh, I want to say he had four or five steals against Lemoyne. Like, can, is, that, is that something we can expect on a nightly basis? Probably not. But if it's cl- reasonably close to that, then then you know that's going to be really, really good for the Tigers. Um, so those, I would say, those are probably my top. Three, oh, and then of course, uh, how they play without Penny Hardaway—that that would be that would be another one. I think also, while the game is
1: still decided, right? Kind of rotational, right? How many guys are they playing? You know, is yeah. there a clear pecking order? Because this is hopefully a night where you know, hopefully everybody gets on the floor at some point. But I think that's kind of the next question, right? Like how 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 are they sorting out the minutes when the game's still somewhat undecided?
2: And, you know, how engaged is everybody when when now that this would be the third time out, like, you know, yeah, again, like it's the third time out in under a week and a half, and you would think that they're starting to sort of get it, yeah. like maybe a little bit faster than, the, than we are, than the fans and the media, but, like, they're probably figuring it out sooner what the pecking order is going to be, so how are they – You know, is everybody, is there anybody who's unhappy? Is there anybody who, uh, you know, I'd like to see as that plays out in front of our eyes, um, is everybody going to remain 100% dialed in the entire time? I mean, Penny has made several comments uh, in the preseason just about how, you know, everybody's happy now. But let's see... You know, I don't want to. I don't want to speak too soon. I want to see what happens when uh, when the lights come on for real. If everybody stays happy, so um, so yeah. No, that's a, that's that's a that's another thing that uh, is is certainly worth monitoring. I think maybe the intensity, right? Because
1: you know, I've covered a few teams. Like I think back, one of the Hugh Freeze teams that I covered, they had like. They had like a FCS game and then a, a Sunbelt game like right before they were going to play Alabama on the road. Like that was going to be the first time you'd kind of know. There might have been a two-lane game in there or something along those lines. But they came out in those first three games and they had an intensity about them. And almost to the point where you're like, man, they're like, they're running it up. And But I think, you know, in in fairness, people know how I feel about Hugh Freeze, but like I think that was a concerted effort because they knew – that game four was going to decide so much of their season. It was going to, you know, largely depend or, you know, predicate a lot, a lot of how it's going to go. Like, yeah, the Missouri game is not the be all end all on Friday, but that's a big game. It's a big opportunity. Like, I I do think I'm curious to see like, what does the intensity look like early?
2: Yes. Um, and, and like, kind of, as you were, as you were laying that out, I was thinking like against lane, one of the things, and I think I talked about it on on you alls show uh, after that lane game. Like one of the things that really stood out to me was how professional, yeah, uh, business like, but like in a good way, not not like sort no, no, of yeah, you know, home like no, like, like hey,
1: that you know, uh, one of the things that's impressed me about Miami USLs, we've played ten games and almost every single game, like they've showed up, even if it was a game that they knew they were going to win, like they didn't. They didn't fart around. Like, I I agree, business-like is always just kind of how I define that.
2: Right, and they did that against Lane. Now, uh, in the first half against LeMoyne, it was, like, not that at all. It was more sort of scattered and um, less – more uneven. Like, it it was like, you know, some of the guys, sure, they they were dialed in and, and ready to roll, but it seemed like, you know, it wasn't across the board the way it was against Lane. Uh, in the first half against Lane, they there was a stretch where they went 16 of 20 from the floor, and I mean they were they just came out, stepped on the throat. Again, it's Lane. Don't get me wrong. I know we're talking about Division II exhibition, but like you know, you can do that. You can still do that no matter who the opponent is. Um, but they came out and stepped on the throat immediately. Uh, didn't didn't you know like and you like to see that because.